Well, happy Easter. Uh, we are so gr- grateful to have you with us this morning. My name is Matt. I have the joy and honor of being the campus pastor here in Halstead, and we are excited to celebrate Resurrection Sunday uh, with you this morning. You ever made a decision that as soon as you made it, you wish you could take it back? Did you ever say something, and the moment those words left your lips, you instantly regretted everything you just said? Perhaps your temper got the best of you one time, and there's really nothing you can do to undo what happened. Maybe you've made a series of choices over an extended period of time that's marked a relationship, perhaps ruining it forever, and and you're left with what you can't seem to change. If you know that feeling, if you know that moment of regret and remorse, the thing you wish you could undo, then you know exactly how the disciples felt the night that Jesus was murdered. See, the night that that Jesus died was one where the disciples made some statements and made some choices that I'm sure they wished they could take back. The whole week prior, the disciples followed Jesus into Jerusalem, and what that meant was they thought and they believed that this was the time where Jesus was going to prove the fact that he was God. He was coming to set up a kingdom, a power, and they were going to have a place of position in this kingdom. So walking behind Jesus, Jesus, we're in. We're following you. Wherever you go, Jesus, we're going with you. We don't don't care what happens. We're staying faithful. So they followed Jesus in. Jesus, on one of those evenings, his final evening with them, prepares a meal for them. It's a Passover meal. became known as communion, in which he sat with them and said, I'm about to die. I'm about to go and I'm about to to do something that's going to afford you something you don't even understand yet. But you're going to betray me. And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said, no, not me. I don't know what happens to these guys. They might. But, But Jesus, I'm staying faithful. To the end, I'm with you, Jesus. Bold, bold claims. A few hours later, Jesus moves on to the garden to begin to pray. While he's there, he is approached by one of his disciples, Judas, who just a few hours earlier was sitting at the table with him. Now has escorted in Roman guards to take him away to a fake trial that was set up to try to pin Jesus on things that weren't actually true. You see, these religious leaders became jealous of Jesus' influence and thought, surely he's coming for our power next. We have to do something. Judas, betraying with a kiss, proving that public affection means nothing in allegiance to Jesus, betrayed by those closest to him. The disciples begin to realize this is not going well for them, and Jesus is taken to this trial in which he is beaten, flogged, mocked, back shredded, beard pulled out of his face, accused of things he didn't do, holy yet stricken, pure yet persecuted. And the disciples begin to wander away. Peter sticks a little closer than the others. But as he's watching this trial happen, he too begins to distance himself from Jesus, realizing that he is going to probably die. And the teenage girl approaches Peter and says, hey, you, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And he says, no, I don't don't know what you're talking about. I don't don't, don't know him. A few minutes later, another individual approaches him and says, no, but you, you were with Jesus. And Peter says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. You got the wrong guy. You, You got the wrong guy. See, Peter begins to make some moves of self-preservation because he realizes he might be next. If Jesus is on trial, surely I'm next. He begins to distance himself even further from Jesus. And then a third individual approaches him and says, no, but for real, you were with Jesus. 
And he curses and says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that man. Warming himself by a fire on this cold evening, is the moment those words leave his lips, he looks up to the upper courtroom and he sees Jesus. And Jesus sees him. And the rooster crows just as Jesus predicted. And in that moment, it's done. It's over for Peter. He's realized what he's done can't be undone. He realized in the moment of greatest need for Jesus, he sought self-preservation and betrayed his closest friend. Begins to weep bitterly. I failed. Jesus moved on to another room in which he is continually beaten near the brink of death, and he's finally accused of things he didn't do and sentenced to an execution by crucifixion. Forced to carry his own cross to the hill called Golgotha, placed between two thieves on a criminal's cross with a plaque that read, King of the Jews, in mockery of this man, who claimed to be something, yet here he is, dying a criminal's death. And with his last gasp of breath, is mocked and betrayed. The Savior of the world, dead on a criminal's cross. It seemed like surely this was the end. Everything they put their hope in, everything they believed in, everything the disciples left to follow, now dead in front of them. It appeared death had finally won. Taking Jesus' body, the, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen, this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs at the place where Jesus was crucified. There was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, since there was a tomb nearby, they laid Jesus there. His lifeless body laid in an opportune tomb. We know a stone was rolled over this tomb to seal it and to close it. I'm sure the sound of that rock closing was deafening. It was the sound of defeat in which death finally beat Jesus. A seal was then placed over that stone to ensure that no one would touch it under fear of death from the Roman Empire, sealing and solidifying that Jesus had lost. And then they placed guards in front, signifying the power of men trying to stop the power of God, the pride of men holding down God. They wanted to be sure this was over. The defeat and loss, I'm sure, was palatable for the disciples because they had to know we must be next. If, if the man we hope to be our savior lies dead in this tomb, surely this too is our future. Fear began to consume them. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of Jewish leaders, you see, they ran and they hid and they locked themselves down in an upper room, hoping nobody would find them because they didn't want to repeat what just happened to Jesus. Can you imagine, though, you have to give them some, some slack here. It might be you next. You don't know what's going to happen. If anything, you have to go back to the people, your friends, your family, your relatives, and say, you know what, we were wrong. This guy we followed around was a farce, and so are we. Fear and anxiety filled this room. They must have believed that with Jesus, not only was their friend buried, but also their hopes and their dreams of a future and what that meant. Hopelessness consumed the room. So, but here's the story of Easter. 
And here's where the story of Easter gets really, really good because though it seemed hopeless, our God specializes in hopeless situations. Our God is a God, when it seems like it's at its worst, we know he's just getting started. When it seems like the story is over, we know our God is just about to begin. Because what does the verse say? Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Through locked doors, Jesus finds his way into the room, standing in front of his disciples, resurrected. Jesus among them. Room once filled with angst and anxiety, now filled with peace himself. His name is Jesus. The story changes. He beat the grave. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Joy upon joy. We see you, Jesus. You did it. Living, breathing proof that what you said was true. You defeated the grave. You resurrected. Overjoyed. Yet somehow, even with the physical proof that Jesus was in front of them, they missed something. Though they understood the event of the resurrection happened, and though they touched the nail-scarred hands to prove his resurrection, they didn't know what it meant for them. Sure, this grave wasn't Jesus' final grave, but I'm pretty sure the decisions we made makes it our final grave. Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with us after how we betrayed him. Surely it's over for us. And so, yay, Jesus is resurrected. That's great. But what about us? See, they missed They missed the fact that Jesus walking out of that grave wasn't just a resurrection of his physical body. It was an undoing of a curse. It was an undoing of the power of sin. And they had no idea what that meant. Until a few days later, Jesus meets them at the beach. And at the beach, he begins to teach them and show them how everything changes when he walked out of that grave. John chapter 21 says this. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. See, that's what we do when we fail, isn't it? We turn our back on God or we make a a choice that we regret. We, We mess up. We fall short. What do we do? We go back to our old patterns of life. Peter says, you know what? This whole following Jesus thing didn't work out. I wasn't cut out for it. I wasn't good enough. Let me go back to what I know. Let me go back to some safety, some security. I got a family to supply for. I got, I got some needs that need to be met. I'm going to meet them myself. I'm going to go out fishing. So often, is that not how we treat failure? We just go back to old patterns. And they said, we'll go with you. We got nothing better to do. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. You know what that's like. As we return to old patterns that we thought would deliver, and they failed to deliver. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends. Don't let that term just pass by. Friends, my brothers, my family, the guys who just betrayed him, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. 
The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jump to verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, did the same with the fish. Here's the scene. Jesus finds his disciples out at their old way of life, out out fishing. And he comes and he starts to fire and he makes breakfast for them. He says, here, give me some fish. I have some breakfast for you. See, he picked up right where they left off just a week earlier when they sat around a table and they shared communion together. And he told them what was going to happen and they didn't believe him. He comes back to that place. to says, hey, I'm here. Let's pick up where we left off. Now, what could have happened at this meal, at this fire, was Jesus could have said, man, I'm here to tell you guys, you really screwed up. You failed me. It's pretty clear to me I picked the wrong 12 guys. You're fired. We're done. I'm just here to let you know you've been let go. I'm going to pick some better guys. He could have reported back to God the Father and said, God, you sent me there. I was there for 33 years. Of those three years, I spent all of my time pouring into 12 guys, and I picked three out of those 12 to be really close with. And I had one who showed a lot of promise, and his name was Peter. And I I told Peter I was going to build the church on him, and he was going to be fundamental. But when I got crucified, you know who left? All of them. So God, you want my report on humanity? Not worth the investment. Leave them to their demise. See, that's how the conversation could have gone. And I bet if you were Jesus or I was Jesus, that's probably how the conversation would have gone. Just leave them. They failed us. See, but here's what separates you and me from from God is that God doesn't shun those who fail him. He doesn't run away from those who fail them. He pursues them. He doesn't run away from people and their failure and their shortcomings. He pursues them. You see, the God of the universe, resurrected from the grave, makes effort to come find his people back at their old habits and makes breakfast for them. And then he looked at Peter and he said, Peter, we've got something to talk about. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So Jesus looked at Peter. He said, Peter, I know you failed, and I know you feel like you've messed this up, and I know you feel like you're done, and you're on the sidelines, but here, I'm going to reinstate you. I'm going to undo everything you did. See, last time you sat by a fire, Peter, you denied me three times. Now, by a fire, you proclaim your love. Peter, I've undone everything you have done. Peter, I have a future for you. I'm not interested in your failure. I'm interested in your future. He looked at Peter. He said, Peter, I have an invitation for you. You might remember a miracle I worked earlier on in your life when the first time I called you, I did the same miracle with the fish, and I've done it again, and here I am with the same invitation. He said to Peter, Peter, follow me. 
So he looked back at this guy who had just betrayed him, and he said, hey, I'm not done with you. You might think your failure has sidelined you in the mission of God, but I'm here to tell you that you're not on the sidelines. You're front and center, and it's not about you looking good. It's about you making much of the grace of God. Peter, your failures are going to shine brightly on how good of a God I am, not how good of a person you are. So he looked at Peter and said, Peter, I beat the grave. And when I beat the grave, I beat your sin, and I beat your disobedience, and I beat your failure. And so I'm not afraid of whatever mess you have, Peter, because I've already won. And I want you to come follow me and be key in my church that will live on to make much of my name, not your name. See, maybe you, like Peter, have some things in your life, some past choices, some regrets, a series of regrets, an addiction, a bad habit that's haunted you, that's taken you away from your pursuit of Jesus, that's caused you just to wander off in failure. See, the story of Easter is the the story that's true in your life, that your past is not a death sentence on your future. Your past is not a death sentence on your future. And though at times it may feel that the things that you have done would surely get in the way of what God has The story of Easter is that's where God's just getting started. That's the redemption that God's about to work in your life and in my life. See, as I look back at my life, there's things that I I have done and choices I've made that go, surely God's done with me now. Surely there's no coming back from that one. And Jesus said, we're just getting started. See, because what the disciples didn't understand, I think is what we often misunderstand, is that when Jesus walked out of the grave, he didn't just beat death for him, he beat the grave for you. You see, he didn't just walk out of his grave, he walked out of your grave. And he walked out of my grave. The hold of sin on us, broken, when Jesus walked out of the grave that day. Jesus says this in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. What is he saying? says that the grave has no hold on anyone who would follow Jesus. And so he looks at Peter and says, Peter, if you follow me, it's got no hold on you. The things you did, your choices, your sin, it's got no claim on you because of me. Paul in 1 Corinthians begins to almost mock the grave. And he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? What is he saying? You've got nothing on me. Though fear of death might be reality, though the grave might take my body, you can't take my soul. Why? Because Jesus walked out of the grave. And when he walked out of that grave, he rolled the tomb away from mine. And he rolled the stone away from my grave. You see, we all have a tombstone with our name on it because of sin. But what Jesus did on Easter is he rolled the stone away. So what that means is that you and I because of the power of Jesus, get to walk out. Walk out of fear, walk out of shame, walk out of disappointment, walk out of addictions, walk out of struggle to have a future and a hope and a relationship. See, what kind of God does this? What kind of God comes and makes breakfast for his friends? I would say it's the type of God who wants a relationship with you who knows you by name, who knows everything there is to know about you and still pursues you because he wants to be in relationship with you. See, that's the kind of God that I want to serve. 
See, because not only that, he prepared a future for you in which death has no claim. See, in heaven, where we're one day going to go be reunited with this Jesus, and I'm sure have great times of communion with him, there's no more hospitals. There's no more ER visits. There's no more funeral homes. There's no more cancer. There's no more radiation. There's no more chemo. There's no more sickness. No more divorce. No more death. No more tears. No more child abuse. No more vaccines. No more pandemics. No more death. No more sorrow. Why? Because Jesus walked out of the grave. And so the question that hangs before all of us today is, is the same question. Because what's true for you, what's true for everyone in this room, that Jesus already rolled the stone away. Death could have no power over you if you would begin to follow Jesus. See, Jesus stands at the, the edge and says, come on out of the darkness. Come on out and be known. Come out and let your sins find the light, and what they will find is healing and forgiveness because of what I did at the cross. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how great you think you are or how bad you think you are. All are equal at the foot of the cross. All are given the same opportunity to come find life. Now, I don't know about you, but why wouldn't you want freedom? Why wouldn't you want to be set free from all of the things that you've tried to cover up your whole life? Why wouldn't you want to come find the life that your heart has been chasing forever? The question remains. Will you let him come resurrect you? Will you let him call you out of the grave and turn what you thought was going to bury you into a garden of life, full of his glory, full of his praise? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We know the story of Easter can just be that at times, a story that we rehearse, but today we proclaim that it is not a story we rehearse. It is a, an event that changed history. Not only did it change world history, God, it changed my eternal destiny. It changed the eternal destiny of anybody who would follow you out of that grave. God, we praise you that you are the one who beat sin and beat death and have made a way for forgiveness and restoration for each one of us. God, we thank you for taking what felt like the end, what felt hopeless, and stepping in in that moment and giving us life and life abundant. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus or you feel that you're stuck in the shadows and, and you feel the pull to come out of darkness, I want you to know today's the day that you can walk into freedom and life. Today's the day that you can know a God who knows everything about you and still pursues you. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for beating the grave for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.